Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading A Journey to the Centre of the Earth, chapters 37 and 38 by Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers had stumbled upon a giant prehistoric human. In tonight's story, the professor comes across a curious and surprising dagger. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 37 The Mysterious Dagger During this time, we had left the bright and transparent forest far behind us. We were mute with astonishment, overcome by a kind of feeling which was next door to apathy. We kept running in spite of ourselves. It was a perfect rite which resembled one of those horrible sensations we sometimes meet in our dreams. Instinctively, we made our way towards the central sea, and I cannot now tell what wild thoughts passed through my mind, nor of what follies I might have been guilty. But for a serious preoccupation which brought me back to practical life. Though I was aware that we were treading on a soil quite new to us, I, however, every now and then, noticed certain aggregations of rock, the shape of which forcibly reminded me of those near Port Gretchen. This confirmed, moreover, the indication of the compass and our extraordinary and unlooked-for, as well as involuntary, return to the north of this great central sea. It was so like our starting point, 
than I could scarcely doubt the reality of our position. Streams and cascades fell in hundreds over the numerous projections of the rocks. I actually thought I could see our faithful and monotonous hands and the wonderful grotto in which I came back to life after my tremendous fall. Then, as we advanced still farther, the position of the cliffs, the appearance of the stream, the unexpected profile of a rock, threw me again into a state of bewilderment and doubt. After some time, I explained my state of mental indecision to my uncle. He confessed to a similar feeling of hesitation. He was absolutely unable to make up his mind in the midst of this extraordinary but uniform panorama. There can be no doubt, I insisted, that we have not landed exactly at the place whence we first took our departure. But the tempest has brought us above our starting point. I think, therefore, that if we follow the coast, we shall once more find Port Gretchen. In that case, cried my uncle, it is useless to continue our exploration. The very best thing we can do is to make our way back to the raft. Are you quite sure, Harry? that we are not mistaken. It is quite difficult, was my reply, to come to any decision, for all these rocks are exactly alike. There is no marked difference between them. At the same time, the impression on my mind that I recognised the promontory at the foot of which our worthy hands constructed the raft. We are, I am nearly convinced, near the little port, if this be not it, I added, carefully examining a creek which appeared singularly familiar to my mind. My dear Harry, if this were the case, we should find traces of our own footsteps, some signs of our passage, and I can really see nothing to indicate having passed this way. But I see something, I cried, in an impetuous tone of voice, as I rushed forward and eagerly picked up something which shone in the sand under my feet. What is it? cried the astonished and bewildered professor. This was my reply. And I handed to my startled relative a rusty dagger of singular shape. What made you bring with you this useless weapon? he exclaimed. It was needlessly hampering yourself. I bring it. It is quite new to me. I never saw it before. Are you sure it is not one of your collection? Not that I know of, said the professor, puzzled. I have no recollection of the circumstance. It was never my property. This is very extraordinary, I said, musing over the novel and singular incident. Not at all. There is a very simple explanation, Harry. 
the Icelanders are known to keep up the use of these antiqued weapons, and this must have belonged to Hans, who has let it fall without knowing. I shook my head. That dagger had never been in the possession of the Pacific and taciturn Hans. I knew him and his habits too well. Then what can it be? Unless it be the weapon of some antediluvian warrior, I continued. Of some living man, a contemporary of that mighty shepherd from whom we have just escaped. But no, mystery upon mystery. This is no weapon of the stone epoch, not even of the bronze period. It is made of excellent steel. Ere I could finish my sentence, my uncle stopped me short from entering upon a train of theories and spoke in his most cold and decided tone of voice. Calm yourself, my dear boy, and endeavour to use your reason. This weapon, upon which we have fallen too unexpectedly, is a true dague, one of those worn by gentlemen in their belts during the 16th century. Its use was to give the coup de grace the final blow to the foe who would not surrender. It is clearly of Spanish workmanship. It belongs neither to you nor to me nor the Ederdown Hunter, nor to any of the living beings who may still exist so marvellously in the interior of the earth. What can you mean, uncle? I said, now lost in a host of surmises. Look closely at it, he continued. These jagged edges were never made by the resistance of human blood and bone. The blade is covered with a regular coating of iron mould and rust, which is not a day old, not a year old, not a century old, but much more. The professor began to get quite excited, according to custom, and was allowing himself to be carried away by his fertile imagination. I could have said something. He stopped me. Harry, he cried, we are now on the verge of a great discovery. This blade of a dagger you have so marvellously discovered, after being abandoned upon the sand more than a hundred, two hundred, even three hundred years, has been indented by someone endeavouring to carve an inscription on these rocks. But this poniard never got here of itself, I exclaimed. It could not have twisted itself. Someone, therefore, must have preceded us upon the shores of this extraordinary sea. Yes, a man. But what man has been sufficiently desperate to do such a thing? A man who has somewhere written his name with this very dagger. A man who has endeavoured once more to indicate the right road to the interior of the earth. Let us look around, my boy. You know not the importance of your singular and happy discovery. 
prodigiously interested, we walked along the wall of rock, examining smallest fissures, which might finally expand into the much-wished-for gully or shaft. We at last reached a spot where the shore became extremely narrow. The sea almost bathed the foot of the rocks, which were here very lofty and steep. There was scarcely a path wider than two yards at any point. At last, under a huge overhanging rock, we discovered the entrance of a dark and gloomy tunnel. There, on a square tablet of granite, which had been smoothed by rubbing it with another stone, we could see two mysterious and much-worn letters. The two initials of the bold and extraordinary traveller who had preceded us on our adventurous journey. A.S., cried my uncle. You see, I was right. Arnie Sacknesem. Always Arnie Sacknesem. Chapter 38 no outlet, blasting the rock. Ever since the commencement of our marvellous journey, I had experienced many surprises that suffered from many illusions. I thought that I was case-hardened against all surprises and could neither see nor hear anything to amaze me again. I was like a many who, having been round the world, find himself wholly blaze and proof against the marvellous. When, however, I saw these two letters, which had been engraved three hundred years before, I stood fixed in an attitude of mute surprise. Not only was there the signature of the learned and enterprising alchemist written in the rock, but I held in my hand the very identical instrument with which he had laboriously engraved it. It was impossible, without showing an amount of incredulity scarcely becoming a sane man, to deny the existence of the traveller and the reality of that voyage which I believed all along to have been a myth, the mystification of some fertile brain. While these reflections were passing through my mind, my uncle, the professor, gave way to an access of feverish and poetical excitement. Wonderful and glorious genius! Great Sacknesem, he cried, you have left no stone unturned, no resource omitted, to show to other mortals the way into the interior of our mighty globe, and your fellow creatures can find the trail left behind your illustrious footsteps, three hundred years ago, at the bottom of these obscure subterranean abodes. You have been careful to secure for others the contemplation of these wonders and marvels of creation. 
your name engraved at every important stage of your glorious journey leads the helpful traveller direct to the great and mighty discovery to which you devoted such energy and courage. The audacious traveller, who shall follow your footsteps to the last, will doubtless find your initials engraved with your own hand upon the centre of the earth. I will be that audacious traveller. I, too, will sign my name upon the very same spot, upon the central granite stone of this wondrous work of the Creator. But in justice to your devotion, to your courage, and to your being the first to indicate the road, let this cape, seen by you upon the shores of this sea, discovered by you, be called, of all time, Cape Sacknesem. This is what I heard, and I began to be roused to the pitch of enthusiasm indicated by those words. A fierce excitement roused me. I forgot everything, the dangers of the voyage and the perils of the return journey were now as nothing. What another man had done in ages past could, I felt, be done again. I was determined to do it myself, and now nothing that man had accomplished appeared to me impossible. Forward, forward, I cried in a burst of genius and hearty enthusiasm. I had already started in the direction of the sombre and gloomy gallery when the professor stopped me. He, the man so rash and hasty. He, the man so easily roused to the highest pitch of enthusiasm, checked me and asked me to be patient and show more calm. Let us return to our good friend Hans, he said. We will then bring the raft down to this place. I must say that though I at once yielded to my uncle's request, it was not without dissatisfaction, and I hastened along the rocks of that wonderful coast. Do you know, my dear uncle, I said, as we walked along, that we have been singularly helped by a concurrence of circumstances? right up to this very moment. So you begin to see it, do you, Harry? said the professor, with a smile. Doubtless, I responded. And strangely enough, even the tempest has been the means of putting us on the right road. Blessing on the tempest. It brought us safely back to the very spot from which fine weather would have driven us forever. Supposing we had succeeded in reaching the southern and distant shores of this extraordinary sea, what would have become of us? The name of Saknesem would never have appeared to us, and at this very moment we should have been cast away upon an inhospitable coast probably without an outlet. Yes, Harry, my boy, there is certainly something providential 
in that wandering at the mercy of wind and waves towards the south. We have come back exactly north, and what is better still, we fall upon this great discovery of Cape Satnasem. I mean to say that it is more than surprising. There is something in it which is far beyond my comprehension. The coincidence is unheard of. Marvellous. What matter? It is not our duty to explain facts, but to make the best possible use of them. Doubtless, my boy. But if you will allow me, said the really delighted professor. Excuse me, sir, but I see exactly how it will be. We shall take the northern route. We shall pass under the northern regions of Europe, under Sweden, under Russia, under Siberia, and who knows where. Instead of burying ourselves under the burning plains and deserts of Africa, or beneath the mighty waves of the ocean, and that is all, at this stage of our journey, that I care to know. Let us advance, and heaven will be our guide. Yes, Harry, you are right, quite right. All is for the best. Let us abandon this horizontal sea, which could never have led to anything satisfactory. We shall descend, descend, and everlastingly descend. Do you know, my dear boy, that to reach the interior of the earth, we have only five thousand miles to travel? Bah, I cried, carried away with my burst of enthusiasm. The distance is scarcely worth speaking about. The thing is to make a start. My wild, mad, and incoherent speeches continued until we rejoined our patient and phlegmatic guide. All was, we found, prepared for an immediate departure. There was not a single parcel but what was in its proper place. We all took up our posts on the raft, and the sail being hoisted, Hans received his directions and guided the frail bark towards Cape Saknasem as we had definitely named it. The wind was very unfavourable to a craft that was unable to sail close to the wind. It was constructed to go before the blast. We were continually reduced to pushing ourselves forward by means of poles. On several occasions, the rocks ran far out into deep water and we were compelled to make a long round. At last, after three long and weary hours of navigation, that is to say, about six o'clock in the evening, we found a place at which we could land. I jumped on shore first, in my present state of excitement and enthusiasm, I was always first. My uncle and the Icelander followed. The voyage from the port to this point of the sea had by no means calmed me. It had rather produced the opposite effect. 
I even proposed to burn our vessel, that is, to destroy our raft, in order to completely cut off our retreat. But my uncle sternly opposed this wild project. I began to think him particularly lukewarm and unenthusiastic. At any rate, my dear uncle, I said, let us start without delay. Yes, my boy, I am quite as eager to do so as you can be. But, in the first place, let us examine this mysterious gallery, in order to find if we shall need to prepare and mend our ladders. My uncle now began to see the efficiency of our rung cough coil, which would doubtlessly soon be needed. The raft, securely fastened to a rock, was left alone. Moreover, the opening into the new gallery was not twenty paces distance from the spot. Our little troop, with myself at the head, advanced. The orifice, which was almost circular, presented a diameter of about five feet. The sombre tunnel was cut in the living rock and coated on the inside by the different material which had once passed through it in the state of fusion. The lower part was about level with the water, so that we were able to penetrate to the interior without difficulty. We followed an almost horizontal direction, when, at the end of about a dozen paces, our further advance was checked by the interposition of an enormous block of granite rock. A cursed stone, I cried furiously, on perceiving that we were stopped by what seemed an insurmountable obstacle. In vain we looked to the right, in vain we looked to the left, in vain examined it above and below. There existed no passage, no sign of any other tunnel. I experienced the most bitter and painful disappointment. So enraged was I that I would not admit the reality of our obstacle. I stooped to my knees. I looked under the mass of stone. No hole, no interstice. I then looked above. The same barrier of granite. Hans, with the lamp, examined the side of the tunnel in every direction. But all in vain. It was necessary to renounce all hope of passing through. I had seated myself upon the ground. My uncle walked angrily and hopelessly up and down. He was evidently desperate. But, I cried, after some moments thought, what about Arnie Sacknessem? You're right, replied my uncle. He can never have been checked by a lump of rock. No, ten thousand times no, I cried with extreme vivacity. In consequence of some singular concussion or process, one of those magnetic phenomena which have so often shaken the terrestrial crust, 
has in some unexpected way closed up the passage. Many and many years have passed away since the return of Satnasem, and the fall of this huge block of granite. Is it not quite evident that this gallery was formerly the outlet for the pent-up lava in the interior of the earth, and that these eruptive matters then circulated freely? Look at these recent fissures in the granite roof. It is evidently formed of pieces of enormous stone, placed here as if by the hand of a giant who had worked to make a strong and substantial arch. One day, after an unusually strong shock, the vast rock which stands in our way, and which was doubtlessly the key of a kind of arch, fell through to a level with the soil and has barred our further progress. We are right, then, in thinking that this is an unexpected obstacle with which Saknasem did not meet, and if we do not upset it in some way, we are unworthy of following in the footsteps of the great discoverer, and incapable of finding our way to the centre of the earth. In this wild way, I addressed my uncle. The zeal of the professor, his earnest longing for success, had become part and parcel of my being. I wholly forgot the past. I utterly despised the future. Nothing existed for me upon the surface of this spheroid in the bosom of which I was engulfed. No towns, no countries, no Hamburg, not even my poor Gretchen, who by this time would believe me utterly lost in the interior of the earth. Well, cried my uncle, roused to enthusiasm by my words, let us go to work with pickaxes, with crowbars, with anything that comes to hand but down with these terrible walls. It is far too tough and too big to be destroyed by a pickaxe or crowbar, I replied. What then? As I said, it is useless to think of overcoming such a difficulty by means of ordinary tools. What then? What else but gunpowder? A subterranean mine. Let us blow up the obstacle that stands in our way. Gunpowder. Yes, all we have to do is to get rid of that paltry obstacle. To work, Hans, to work, cried the professor. The Icelander went back to the raft and soon returned with a huge crowbar with which he began to dig a hole in the rock, which was to serve as a mine. It was necessary for our purpose to make a cavity large enough to hold fifty pounds of fulminating gun cotton, the expansive power of which is four times as great as that of ordinary gunpowder. I had now roused myself to an almost miraculous state of excitement. While Hans was at work, 
I actively assisted my uncle to prepare a long wick made from damp gunpowder, the mass of which we finally enclosed in a bag of linen. We are bound to go through, I cried enthusiastically. We are bound to go through, responded the professor, tapping me on the back. At midnight, our work as miners was completely finished. The charge of fulminating cotton was thrust into the hollow, and the match, which we had made of considerable length, was ready. A spark was now sufficient to ignite this formidable engine, and to blow the rock to atoms. We will now rest until tomorrow. It was absolutely necessary to resign myself to fate, and to consent to wait for the explosion for six weary hours. <laughs>